Well, this morning we start a new series. It's called The Generous Life. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually tells us at the end of the book of Acts, there's a, a, uh, a speech that's recorded there by the author Luke, uh, in which Jesus says, according to Paul, uh, this is one of Jesus' teachings, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And that's not like saying, I like Coke better than Pepsi, uh, but rather it's to, to say just how unique an expression giving is. It stands by itself. Uh, to be generous, to give, is really what should be aspired to by the Christian community and by all communities. And so as we come this morning, we come into a new series in which we look at uh, the generous life and we look at the contours of that life. We'll walk through uh, each week different aspects of that. And I know when I hear uh, generosity, I, I, I just think that someone's going to start talking to me about money. And, and that's not what this series is about. Oftentimes we get confused with thinking uh, that God is demanding something of us all the time, and really to hear that in this series, we're going to talk about what God wants for you and what God wants for us, and it's probably a bigger picture than you even imagine uh, for yourselves. And so as we walk in these different texts each week, uh, we're going to look at an expansive life, the expansive life God calls us to, uh, to live into uh, what I'm calling the generous life. Last summer, Reader's Digest uh, ran a story entitled, 21 Extraordinary Stories, of generosity that will stay with you. How's that for a title? You're expecting big things when you hear that kind of title. And the stories, they don't disappoint. We're not disappointed by those stories at all. They're really quite uplifting stories. This is heartwarming stuff. Uh, And as announced, the stories do in fact stay with the reader. And I think the reason for that is because they inspire us to increase our own uh, generous efforts in life. One of those stories is about a fellow named Greg Daly. He's a paper boy. Uh, I don't know if you can call him paper boy. News carriers, I think, is the official term. We call him paper boys when I was a paper boy uh, back in the day. But news carriers, uh, so he delivers uh, newspapers. He's an adult, so paper boy is probably the wrong title there. But he, he serves in New Jersey. He delivers uh, papers. And early in the pandemic, uh, one of his elderly customers stopped him and shared with him that she was having trouble uh, getting to the end of her driveway to pick up the newspaper, and so she asked him if he would uh, instead deliver the, the paper closer to her front door. And of course, I uh, didn't have to think about it at all. He said, of course, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll help out with that. But then he began to wonder, if you can't get to the end of your driveway to get your newspaper, how is it that you're supposed to get out of your house to get the essentials when those early quarantines were rolling out? And so he thought, I should do something about this. And so on his route, what he did is he put a little note in each of the newspapers that he delivered. And the note just simply said, my name is Greg Daly, and I deliver your newspaper every morning. I would like to offer my services free of charge to anyone who needs groceries. I'll go and pick them up for you, and I'll deliver them to you. More than 100 of his elderly residents took Greg up on that offer. Like I said, heartwarming, inspiring stories. People doing selfless things, selfless acts to care for, their neighbor, care for their neighbor. It makes you want to do more. It makes you feel like you should be doing more than you're doing. It makes me feel that way for sure. And there's a good reason for this. Generosity reflects the character of our generous creator. When we encounter this kind of love from others or within our own efforts, we not only enact life the way it ought to be, At the same time, we catch a glimpse of the way that life will one day be in creation. 
Ananias and Sapphira, in our text this morning, tell us an altogether different story. This is a completely different story. It's a story that the commentator William Barclay will call the most vivid story in the book of Acts. And the account we have stands in direct contrast. So Acts chapter 5 stands in direct contrast to what we hear in Acts chapter 4. There, in Acts 4, we learn that the earliest church exhibited great care for one another. They're generously contributing and sharing what they had so all the members could be provided for. Now, before you get too excited here and start thinking that we're going to go down a road here to advocate a particular modern political or economic uh, system, we're not. Instead, what we're to hear in Acts at this point, which will be helpful to us, and something that we shouldn't lose sight of, is that the description here of the Christian community is a description of fellowship. It's a description of actual community. And I wonder at this point how often our own picture of what we might call fellowship uh, is so much far lacking compared to that picture of the earliest church. Our ideas tend to revolve around a cup of coffee and 20 minutes after a service. And koinonia here is something much bigger. This is a generous community that's caring for one another. And one of the stories that emerged from that time is one that we heard Amy share earlier. Story of a guy named Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas, who sells a field and lays the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. A generous act that appears to have inspired our own Ananias and Sapphira and their plan to sell their property and donate proceeds to the Christian community. But there's a problem. That seemingly generous couple is not who they seem to be. Their gift is predicated on a lie. That much Peter makes known for us. First to Ananias and later to Sapphira, and giving Sapphira the opportunity to back out of the lie, which, of course, she doesn't. And what makes this deception all the more heinous is the fact that this couple was never under any obligation to sell the property or to even donate the proceeds themselves. The scheme that they hatched here seems bent on achieving some kind of personal aim, whether that's recognition or standing in the community. Uh, we're not quite sure what it is, but apparently there is some reason that they've come up with uh, in order to do this and to try to get away with it. They seem to be generous, but in actuality, it's just deception. And we know this kind of nonsense in our own world today. Lying, deception, misrepresentation, that's not just first century problems, that's every century problems. And each one of us find ourselves tempted, even uh, with the seeming mildest of fabrications, whether that's a little, what we used to call little white lies or fibs, exaggerations or half-truths. It's not outright deceit to advance ourselves and our own interests is what it turns out to be. Whole sectors in our society work uh, to do what they call spinning the truth for profit and for gain, for notoriety. I read about a celebrity this last week that about a year ago was paid $25,000. $25,000 for them to endorse the, a charity called CUPA. It was Cleaning Up Plastic Pollution in Africa is this charity. And this celebrity would go on to post uh, on their social media, I'm proud to support CUPA. 
had a picture of them with a shirt on, had a cup on, had a mug with cup on it. The problem, of course, being that cuppa doesn't actually exist. <laughs> it's not a real charity. It's fake, which makes being proud of their work rather challenging. Or think about the conference speaker who in 2007 addressed illegal practices on Wall Street. The conference speaker stated, in today's regulatory environment, it's virtually impossible to violate the rules. That's interesting, this thing to say, since that conference speaker just died this past week in prison, Bernie Madoff, who at the time when he made that statement was operating the largest Ponzi scheme in history, cheating some 4,800 clients out of what has been estimated to be to the tune of $18 billion. Deception. Lies. These, of course, are particularly egregious examples. But at the same time, in our culture, we kind of shrug our shoulders, maybe even wink at it. We might even relish, to some level, the varying less degrees of deception that we encounter. We certainly make movies about these characters, whether fictitious liars or actual stories of deception. You've heard the jokes about politicians. You've heard the jokes about lawyers. You've seen the big claims from the infomercials and those who peddle products of all kinds. And all this deception and all this lying, it erodes our confidence. It erodes our trust in one another. But when it takes shape in the faith community, it not only diminishes the church's witness, it has the possibility of extinguishing that witness altogether. Now, I imagine at this point there are a few listeners who are unconvinced. Is it really that bad? Is what Ananias and Sapphira did, is it, is it really that bad? I mean, they were sort of generous. They gave something. You know, it's just a little, little lie on the side. You know, Is it really that bad? Well, our text offers to us a response from Peter. And Peter's response here in his assessment is that it's worse... <laughs> It's worse than we can imagine. It's worse. And it's probably worse than Ananias and Sapphira imagined in their own life. Note these things that Peter says. He says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart in verse 3? That is not a very flattering description. <laughs> Someone tells you why has Satan filled your heart, that is not a good thing. But we've heard this type of language before. For those who are familiar with the gospel narrative, if I were to invite you at this moment to recall a story that involved a character who was infiltrated by Satan, whose sin involved money and also land and deception, you may be drawn to this story early in Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. But others, again, knowing the gospel story, would recall another character who's probably more famous with all those attributes. Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus, who we hear in Luke chapter 22, or 22 verse 3, tells us that Satan entered him, that Satan enters him. And in Acts 1, we hear that a field is purchased, the same place where Judas will kill himself. And so we have a story that involves land and money and deception. And I don't think that these markers are struck by accident by this author. The actions and agenda of the couple are intended 
to be heard by the reader here in the same light, that these were despicable and heinous actions that were not welcome in the first century church, and for good reason. Craig Keener uh, will observe this in his commentary, that this couple wanted to join God's community while also retaining their personal autonomy from God's authority. They thereby risked infiltrating God's church with Satan's agenda. And so you have it worse than even probably what they imagined. But not just that. Note the second thing that Peter says to them in verses 3 and 4. That they lied, not just to the community, not just to the apostle, but even more so they have lied to God. I don't think I need to explain why this one is a bad idea. I think we know this is a bad idea. Deception and cover-ups by the human family before the eyes of God are as old as the garden itself back in Genesis. And we know that even going back then and the chapters that follow and the books that go all the way through the canon into our very own lives and our own stories, that just like then, God finds us and that God sees our heart and God saw the heart and exposed the heart of these two. The third thing that Peter identifies here, again, speaking to how this is worse than they might have imagined or even what we might imagine, is he asks Sapphira in verse 9, how is it that you have agreed to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? In Deuteronomy 6, we hear the great commandment. And posited alongside that commandment uh, is, uh, is this uh, section that's called the Shema. Familiar with the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is, is one, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this chapter continues on as you read into Deuteronomy 6. It calls for faithful remembering and obedience by the covenant community. And then it's followed by a caution. It cautions the people about disobedience. And in that caution, one of those expressions we see in verse 16, again in Deuteronomy chapter 6, is this. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That sounds familiar. It sounds familiar because Jesus will recite this same text in Luke chapter 4 when he refuses Satan. But the schemers in our text have not refused Satan. They haven't refused it. Their sin is exposed for what exactly it is. It's an affront to God with lying and testing. It's a welcoming of Satan. And it's a twisting of the charge and shared life of the people of God. So at this point, we come to the great question of the morning. Why would you start a series on generosity with this text? (laughs) Is this some sort of warning? Are we expecting that there's going to be some sort of request for gifts and offerings and we better pay up? And bring the full amount? Is that what I am supposed to hear in all this? Not at all. Here's why I chose this text, why I felt drawn to it uh, to start our series. First thing is this, is it comes after a text in chapter 4, which we've already talked about in the kids' sermon and also here. This idea that God wants something for us that's bigger and better than oftentimes what we expect or imagine for ourselves. We note in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership 
of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. It goes on in verse 33, with great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Verse 34 reads, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it all at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That description is a description of the church, the community, as a generous community, as a community that's experienced such an expansion and such a fullness of God's presence and love and benefit that comes from that place of joy and fellowship. And it's bigger than our imagination of churches today. It's bigger than the picture we draw in the Western world for what the church means. We get a little bit at it. We, we take our toe and dip it in the water a little bit. And we have some wonderful, wonderful expressions of this in our own church today. But we could be bigger. We could expand that. We could be more generous. And the challenge is, in all of this, is when we get to chapter 5, is we find a couple that reminds us you can do this wrong. That you can do this wrong. You can do generosity wrong, even in the faith community. Folks, in, in chapter 5, well, actually, there's a reference in verse 11, the way they talk about themselves. In book of Acts, there's a, the use of a word uh, that we have translated as church. Um, it's a word that will show up uh, a lot of times throughout the early part, at least the first half of Acts. Um, it's the word ecclesia. The word shows up in chapter 2 for the first time uh, in the book of Acts, but then it shows up for the second time right at the end of our own text. It talks about this group that's the church. And we might think immediately we're talking about a local congregation at that point. But to understand what that language would have meant to these people at that time, if you look back at Joshua and it talks about the assembly of God's people, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, will use the same ecclesia word to talk about that assembly, that gathering of God's people. The fledgling church here sees itself corporately, sees itself as a people of God, and with the, that identity comes the recognition of certain responsibilities. There's responsibilities towards holiness, holy living, and obedience to Christ's teaching. And as a community in which dwelled the Holy Spirit, they viewed themselves as an expression of God's temple in this new covenant life. And so it's no wonder uh, that a community like this would take very seriously anyone who might mishandle that which is sacred and holy. If you think about the Old Testament, you think about those who brought strange fire or those who mishandled the Ark of the Covenant. What happened to those characters? They fell dead. And so you can think about a story like this, people who have mishandled uh, the pieces of this sacred community and what happened and why that story would stay and why they would continue to tell that story as a warning, as a cautionary tale. The church does well to take God's instruction serious, to take it seriously. N.T. Wright says this, says, we either choose to live in the presence of the of the God who made the world and who longs passionately for it to be set right, or we lapse into some variety or other of easygoing paganism, even if it has a Christian veneer to it. Holiness, in other words, is not an optional extra. The church of any age recognizes who we are and whose we are. Holiness and obedience looks far less optional. And the generous life becomes far more possible. 
But the last thing, and I've noted this already, this text serves as a caution sign for us as we head down this journey of this new series. It's a caution sign to remind us that although generosity entails giving, it's not a given. It's not a given. We try to live the generous life that God has for us, and we love money and we love stuff, we're going to have trouble. We're going to run into trouble. We're busy scheming against our neighbor and lying and misrepresenting ourselves. If we're trying to deceive God, it's not going to end well. So our first text in the series presents the caution sign. You can do generosity wrong. I want to close with this. When my wife and I were living back east, and uh, we had a chance to visit a, a town called Newport, Rhode Island. Newport, Rhode Island. And while there, we got to tour the historic mansions. If you've ever been to Newport, Rhode Island, if you've ever seen it, uh, there are some impressive, impressive mansions that are there. Massive edifices that stand witness to another time. The latter part of the 19th century, some of our nation's richest families uh, would converge on that town of Newport for a summer of yachting, playing tennis, and throwing extravagant parties. I heard about one party where they actually had monkeys at the party that were swinging around and stuff uh, as part of the, the background. So extravagant. They're always trying to outdo each other. And of course, the impressive wealth and grandeur and opulence uh, that was on display that was joined by society who at the time was experiencing runaway success, uh, huge amounts of greed and political corruption. The working class didn't fare well, at least not as well as these elites. The few amassing considerable wealth at the expense of many. Mark Twain uh, coined this word for that age. He called it the Gilded Age. So it was the Gilded Age. And like the name implies, the pleasing look of the age was but a thin veil masking the real troubles that existed underneath. God doesn't want you and God doesn't want me to live gilded lives. The scriptures don't call us to live with a thin veneer, but rather God wants us to live a rich and full life, a generous life. The Bible doesn't talk about veneers or gildings. It talks about streets of gold. It talks about golden rules. And it talks about being refined as gold, not phony veneers. So as we set our feet out on this journey, as we put our hands out to receive what God has for us to do, to live generously with our lives, we ask that God would fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit that as we serve, we might do so as a full expression of God's love in every aspect of our lives. May it be so. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love for us. A love that takes those who want to root themselves, a people who want to root themselves in shallow graves, and rather moves us to places where we might experience deeper root to be more expressive, to live more expansive lives. And so today, Lord, our prayer is that we would live a faithful life before you, a life of faithfulness in your presence, one that is generous in all things. 
Lord, in our own hearts, we know there are places and there are corners and corridors where we give quarter to darkness, where we give quarter to these veneers and these, these gildings. And instead, Lord, you're calling us to live a deeper and richer life. So, Lord, help us in those places. Give us grace and peace that we might live the life you're calling us to, a life of faithful love and obedience.